Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. My oldest goddaughter, Ming, read so much when she was a child that her mother had to beg her to stop reading long enough to eat. And every birthday and Christmas, I'd get Ming books to feed her addiction. One year, I asked what she'd like. Without hesitation, she told me that she only wanted books about children whose parents were dead. Only orphans would do. My mission clear, I went to Books of Wonder, the great children's bookstore near my apartment, where I was greeted by an enthusiastic bookseller. I told her about my instructions. A children's book, fiction, about a kid with dead or missing parents. An orphan on a perilous adventure. Did they have anything like that? The bookseller looked at me, then pointed to one shelf, then another, then another. She wasn't so much pointing as drawing a circle around the entire store. Welcome to children's literature, she said. As I picked up a stack of books, she clued me in. The thing every child fears most is being left alone, orphaned, abandoned. But when they read books about kids who were and how they survived, it's a way of confronting their greatest fear. If another kid can survive it, so can they. I realize then that I'm still that kid. I, too, seek out books that tackle head-on my greatest fears. A plane crash, a murderous clown, a swarm of bees. If people in those books can endure, then maybe so can I. And recently, I got to talking about stories of survival with today's guest. My name is Louise Penny, and I write the Armand Gamache Mysteries. I've known Louise for the last five years, but you probably know her as the prolific author of books like Still Life, A Fatal Grace, and most recently, Glass Houses. They're a series of mysteries that follow Detective Armand Gamache around Quebec as he investigates murders. So it should come as little surprise that Louise Penny has always had a vivid imagination. I used to dream that I was adopted and that my real mother was the Queen of England, <laughs> and that she would come and take me away from this horrific family that was only ever loving. I think I found it boring growing up in Toronto in the 1950s and 60s. There just wasn't a lot going on. And on top of that, as though that wasn't bad enough, I was growing up in a neighborhood known as Hogtown, so there was humiliation kind of wrapped in with the, the, the boredom. But at the same time, it was, there was, I think it's sort of an Andy Griffith-esque quality to it because there was a sort of a sameness to it, which appealed to me, I think. I came out of the womb afraid. I just terrified of, of everything. And I was thankfully never given a reason to be afraid, but I just always was. And so I was very shy, um, insecure, uh, uh, moody. You can, you can see what a delight I was as a child. And that fear extended to other children. The worst thing in the world for me would be not being invited to other children's birthday parties. And the second worst thing was being invited to other children's birthday parties. <laughs> My birthday was uh, 
in July. So the school year was over. And so I used to invite a bunch of girls to my birthday party and most of them would decline. And I realize now, looking back, it was probably because they went off to camp or went off with their family somewhere else or whatever. It wasn't because they didn't like me, but my interpretation was that they didn't like me. But the one place that Louise found solace and friends was in her favorite activity, reading. How did you come across Charlotte's Web? I think Charlotte's Web, I think it must have been a gift. I was already a voracious reader, and I, I ended up picking up Charlotte's Web one day. It wasn't read to me. I was never very good at school, but I was always a great reader. And so I, I just I picked it up and started reading. It was just one of many books, one after another after another, but it was the book that, that essentially changed my life. I was, as I, I was afraid of everything, everything. I was afraid of everything. But I was also afraid of spiders. It became like a phobia for me. I would see a spider, I would literally, I would run away and run upstairs and hide in my room, close the door and get into a corner. Then I was a little screwed because <laughs> now I don't know where the spider is. <laughs> now I can imagine it growing and coming up with all of its friends up the stairs and down the hallway toward me and I'd stare at the door waiting for them to start piling in. In spite of that phobia, Louise found herself drawn into the story of Charlotte, the spider who helped save the life of Wilbur the pig. She was unable to put the book down. What happened in that instant that, that was life-changing and, and magical and mystical is that I realized that I loved Charlotte and I wanted nothing bad to happen to her. And she was a friend of mine. And in that instant, my cardinal fear, my biggest fear, was lifted. And that really was magic. It was incredible. And I understood that it came from the power of the word, the power of storytelling, and the power of imagination to, 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 to heal. If reading could lift that fear, maybe it could help heal other fears. And, in, and it did. It helped one by one. A lot of my fears, not all of them, but a lot of them fell away. Or at least if they didn't actually fall away, reading gave me a map through life, a way to navigate humanity that made sense to me so that I could have friendships and I didn't have to be so sensitive and I could resolve issues with people. And I learned that from, from reading books. And one of the fears that fell away was the fear of spending time with other children. Louise and her family moved to Montreal, where they spent their summers at a lake house, a place, Louise says, she finally came into her own. I finally had friends I felt I could trust who loved me and I loved them. Hélène Richet and, and uh, Vicki Harris and Lucy Holden. And we would hang around Sarah Dobell. I still remember their names. We would have sleepovers and we would play games and we'd take tennis lessons. And Vicky and I had, had the crush on the same boy at the same time. And we were free. We used to just leave in the morning and we would throw on bathing suits and run outside. And we'd put 
our our bath towels, our swimming towels around our necks like capes, and we would run around, and it was fantastic. We would get on bikes and go up and down, complete freedom, and then we'd come home when we were hungry. It was a little bit like peanuts, where parents were kind of wah, 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 and they, they handed us food, and that, and that was it. But I remember lying in bed one night, uh, absolutely, completely at peace and calm and happy, and hearing through the grate, my parents discussing the fact they were about to divorce. I've never forgot, obviously, that moment of having, finally finding peace and having it completely shattered. When we come back from the break, books remain a source of renewal for Louise, and she begins to think that writing might be too. Louise Penny had spent much of her early childhood using books to conquer her fears of spiders, of making friends, you name it. But when her parents announced their divorce, she found herself thrown into new circumstances that she hadn't been prepared for. We went from being, I don't think I realized it at the time because I don't think children do, but very privileged and very comfortable in our existence to having nothing. And my mother had to go out to work. And this was not something she ever saw, ever in a million years expected would happen. And when we, as I said, we had nothing. I mean, I remember days where we barely had food. And she came home with her first paycheck. And we thought, fine, you know, this is great. We'll have food. And uh, she said, come with me. I want to take you out. So we, we thought we'd go for a, to a restaurant for, for dinner, something special, a treat. And she got us on a couple of buses and then on the subway. And she was retracing the route that she took to work, including walking down this, this road with a bunch of shops on it. And we turned into an art gallery. And with her first paycheck, she bought a work of art. And she said to us, now you must remember that you must always, no matter what is happening, you must always have beauty in your life. It looks like a Mayan, a very, very full-bodied, voluptuous statue. It looks like a painting of a statue. And I understand now why it appealed to her. She herself was a woman who was taking her place in the world. And when she died, that was, and we each got to choose something, um, that was the first thing I chose, and it still obviously has a, a place of importance in my home. And what role did books play for you during that period? Oh, they were, I, 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 I don't want to over, I don't think I would have killed myself had books not existed, but they certainly were a comfort and a company because I, I was always a fearful child and that just made me more uh, isolate more. And had I not had books, I would have been sitting in my room alone ruminating. But I was able to pick up these books and find friendship and find a community that, that I wouldn't normally have. They were, yeah, they, they were friends. And I don't, again, I don't, I know that can sound kind of cliche or, but it was for a lonely 
confused, frightened, and angry child to have an island that was were my books what, what goes beyond meaningful. And it was then that Louise realized that her love of books might go beyond simply reading them. If reading was that powerful, then imagine how powerful writing, creating the stories must be. I decided that that's what I would be as a writer. I didn't, of course, become a writer right away. <laughs> I didn't, wasn't even, oddly enough, one of those children who sort of sat down and made up stories all by myself. I didn't. I didn't. I think it felt too much like work. I had an active imagination, but I wasn't, didn't write down the stories. They just lived in my head. But I started, I tried to write from the age of probably late teens through my 20s. I have my first rejection letter. Actually, I still have it. It's from uh, McClellan and Stewart in Toronto. Very polite, but quite firm. Louise kept trying to write but found that her work was never what she wanted it to be. The problem I had was that I had led, despite what I'm describing, this, I, I wasn't a child who was really, or a young person, really in touch with myself. And so there wasn't a lot of self-awareness. So there wasn't a lot that I could bring to a book. And I realized I just wanted to write, for the most part, in order to impress other people. And so the books were pretty hollow and pretty callow and, for the most part, not even finished. I think what happened was that I was afraid of failing, afraid of trying and failing. It's a little bit like waiting for Godot, that maybe it's better to not test out the dream. Just leave it as a dream, because what happens if you can't do it? And I had, I had started drinking quite heavily, uh, when I was in my 20s, and I think that was all an effort to cope. That did not help with self-awareness either, because, of course, you don't drink because you're a happy person. You drink because, for the most part, you're trying to escape. And so I became quite superficial human being without a lot of human contact either, because as someone who's naturally um, shy, naturally introverted who prefers her own company and then you add drinking on top of it. And I didn't go to bars. I was an isolated drinker. I would come home and, and, and get drunk. So that didn't add to um, my, my store of friends or human interaction. And it wasn't until I got sober and met Michael and started leading um, um, a healthier life with other human beings in it, that I actually had a center. Before that, I was hollow. When Louise met her soon-to-be husband, Michael, she says she found more of her fears dissipating. And he also helped give her the opportunity to do the one thing she wanted to do most, write. Michael played a huge role in allowing me to write. I was a journalist. I was working for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, hosting shows, and I was getting pretty burned out. And, and I came home one day and I was just exhausted. And, and Michael said, if you would like to quit work in order to write that book that I know you've always dreamed of writing, I'll support you. And when he said, I'll support you, and he meant it. And, and thank heaven he meant financially. but <laughs> He clearly meant emotionally as well. And so I quit work and 
then I suffered five years of writer's block. It got to the stage where poor Michael, he would come home from work and he was afraid to ask me how the book was going. <laughs> but he never, he never, never, never led me to believe that, that he was any less interested in, in my writing, any less supportive, that he was impatient, that he felt he was, he had backed the wrong horse. He was always positive that the book would happen. Michael used to call me a horizontalist because I would spend much of my day trying to figure out how to get horizontal, either on a sofa or on a bed or in a bathtub. And I was preparing to get horizontal with a book, and I, I looked over on the, the bedside table, and there, there was fiction and nonfiction and all sorts of different types of books, but very well represented was crime fiction. And I had one of those um, aha moments where I realized in a flash that I was trying to write the wrong book for the wrong reason. I was trying to write a work of transcendent literary fiction, the best novel ever written, because otherwise, why bother? I was trying to write a book that my mother would be proud of, that my brothers would be proud of, that my former colleagues would be jealous of, that, that, that strangers would come up and bow down. And I understood Again, in that instant, it just all came just like a, like lightning, just boom, this self-awareness of I needed to write a book just for myself, not for anyone else. And that the contract with my eight-year-old self sitting on a bed reading Charlotte's Web wasn't that the book be any good, not even that it be published, just that it be written. And that's where still life came from. I went, I got up. I, I became vertical, and I went down to the kitchen, and I, and I drew the map of this fictional village that I write about, Three Pines, and I still have that map. And I drew, the first thing I created in Three Pines was the bookstore, because what could be more important than a bricks-and-mortar bookstore? And so I created characters I'd like to hang around with, and a village that, that I would want to live in. And so every decision I made was absolutely about my own enjoyment. It was the most selfish thing I have ever done and the most rewarding. It was, it was, it was a fantastic, it was a terrifying experience, but it was fantastic. I didn't want to reach the end of my days regretting never having tried the one thing that I've always dreamed of doing out of fear. I didn't want fear, the fear that had plagued me most of my life, to steal. What a thief it has been for much of my life, and it wasn't going to steal this from me. But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson, with editing help from Alyssa Martino and Alex Abnos. Thanks to Louise Penny, Kayla Janis, and Sarah Melnick. For more from Louise Penny, check out the latest Armand Gamache mystery, coming out this November. It's called Kingdom of the Blind. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. And if you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. 
send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.